our sermon series through the book of Luke, and we're in Luke 3. I had a hard decision this week to make, a really hard decision, because we left off in Luke 1, 5 through 25, and the very next section, uh, which is a really hefty section of the first two chapters of Luke, is the infancy and nativity narrative. But we just preached through all that <laughs> a, a couple months ago for Advent season, and most of it came from Luke, so I didn't want to rehash it all. Um, but just so we know, because we're preaching from Luke 3 this morning, um, Jesus has been born, um, the shepherds, the whole Advent story, again, we just went through it, but um, essentially we left off with Elizabeth and Zechariah receiving the message and Elizabeth being, um, uh, be- becoming pregnant. And the last place we left off was she's five months pregnant and she rejoices in contrast to Zechariah's response of doubt. She rejoices that the Lord is going to remove her dishonor and her reproach because she's, she's older. And um, so we pick up here, uh, it's really about 30 years later. Um, after the infancy narrative. And it's important for us to know before we read our passage that Luke is not telling a strict chronology. It's not year one, year two, year three, year four, year five. He's telling a narrative. And so as he tells a narrative, he goes off and says, and this happened over here, and then he'll skip forward 10 or 20 or 30 years. And so it's important to understand. And sometimes he'll, he'll, he'll go back a little bit. So it's not a strict chronology, but it's a narrative And he's telling this story. So turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, And Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to baptize him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And 
crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered to them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the soldiers also asked them, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Father, we thank you now for this word. We pray, O oh God, that as we um, read about John's message of repentance in the wilderness, that the power and force of his message would impact us. That you would open our hearts and our eyes, that we would glean the power and wisdom of the text, that we would be convinced of the word of God, and that we would grow from hearing it and learning it. Lord, we pray for transformation in our hearts, that we would also grow in repentance. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I probably will not be able to preach through all 20 uh, of these verses. I, I kind of went over and read to the 22nd verse, but... Um, last week, as I said earlier, we introduced uh, Elizabeth and Zachariah, and just so you know, the part we skipped over that we read through during Advent, Elizabeth is Mary's cousin. Elizabeth is Mary's older cousin, and um, if you remember, John, the angel said, was essentially to take the vow of a Nazarite. Now, the Nazarite vow comes from number six, and it's essentially the vow of a Hebrew monk, that he would not touch anything unclean or that he wouldn't drink any alcohol. And it's likely because John's parents were old when Elizabeth became pregnant that they've, that they've uh, passed away by this time. John is about 30 years old, and it's likely his parents are not alive anymore. And um, John's been in the desert talking and communing with God. He's been talking with the Lord. He's been communing with God, which explains his remarkable prophetic character. John is a prophet. In fact, Jesus in Luke 7 says that of men born of women, there is none greater than John. 
That's what Jesus said about John. John is unique. He's special. In fact, scholars consider him the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's essentially the last of the Old Testament prophets. And 400 years of silence to the nation of Israel is broken by this strange Hebrew monk in the wilderness, 16 miles east of Jerusalem, baptizing people in the Jordan River. And Luke gives us some context, and he tells us about these, these, these rulers. He tells us about Herod and um, Tiberius and Pilate and Annas and Caiaphas. And he gives us some context uh, for John's preaching. Tiberius was an emperor, incredibly paranoid. Uh, his reign was uh, characterized by um, multiple trials for sedition. He was paranoid. And a personal tragedy in his life, um, it's believed, caused him to descend into uh, mental instability. And uh, he's infamous for a reign of terror. He expelled all the Jews from Rome and um, executed hundreds, if not thousands. He waged a campaign of terror against Roman citizens. Pilate, as you know, is the Roman governor. We all know who Pilate is. He's the governor of Judea. And his administration was marked by briberies, insults, and robberies. Uh, frequent executions without trials, savage ferocity. Um, he was so callous to Jewish religious sensibilities um, that he introduced tokens of emperor worship into Jerusalem and stole money from the temple. So here's a guy charged with keeping peace, and every chance he gets, he antagonizes the people he's ruling over. Herod was the king, so-called king of the Jews, he was such a megalomaniac that he built a new capital city on a graveyard. And if you know anything about Jewish laws and customs, graveyards were unclean because that's where dead bodies were. So this is also an evil man. This is also the same Herod that later has John executed. And then there's Annas and Caiaphas, and they share the office of high priest. An office that's supposed to be occupied by faithful servants of God, but um, these are puppets of the Roman regime, and they've got a penchant for nepotism, not godliness. Annas and Caiaphas are related. In fact, there's a dynasty where uh, four high priests in a row are all related to each other. So you can see that what Luke is trying to do is demonstrate, number one, these men are evil. And not only that, Luke's intending to illustrate to us that um, Israel, God's beloved chosen nation, is infected with corruption. Say, why, why does he mention these rulers? They don't seem to have much of a part in this passage of Scripture. Luke's giving us context to let us know that John is crying out in the wilderness in the midst of intense corruption in Israel's history. It is a time of intense corruption. And, you know, um, corrupt leaders are often a sign of God's judgment on a nation. And the Bible says in Luke 3 and 2 that um, the word of God came to John 
in the wilderness. It didn't come to John in the halls of power. It didn't come to John in the court of the Jewish priests and high leaders. The word of God came to John in the wilderness. And if you remember the prophecy from Malachi about John, it was that, um, that he would not only come in the spirit of Elijah, but Malachi's prophecy is one long indictment, one long terrible impeachment of the nation. That's essentially what Malachi, the book of Malachi, the last book of the Bible is all about. In fact, you could say that Malachi as a prophet has the heaviest burden of all of the Old Testament prophets because he's essentially announcing uh, how, how bad it's become in the nation. And the book of Malachi leaves off with these words, this cliffhanger. Essentially, uh, turn from your wicked ways, lest I come to the land and smite the land with a curse. And also the prophecy, right, that, that the forerunner of the Messiah would come in the spirit of Elijah... And what's interesting is, Elijah, if you remember, was also a wilderness prophet. You remember, if you know about Elijah, Elijah is in the wilderness proclaiming faithfulness to Yahweh, Israel's God, because Israel at that time was being ruled by wicked King Ahab and his idolatrous wife Jezebel. And so not only is there this similarity, but John is doing something that's almost identical, you could say, to the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah. He's in the wilderness, and what he's doing is he's boycotting the temple. John is boycotting the temple. He's boycotting the halls and, and power centers because they're corrupt. And John's not the only one. If you, if you know a little bit about, maybe you've watched A&E or the History Channel or you've seen documentaries, you know that there were other groups also who boycotted the temple in Jerusalem. There were the Essenes. The Essenes were an ascetic sect of religious Jews, and, and they, were lived, they lived in, out in the desert also. In fact, their community is referred to as the Qumran community. You've probably heard this before. And these are the ones who wrote down the entire Old Testament very carefully, word for word, on scrolls, and put them in pots in a cave. These are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. In fact, the Dead Sea Scrolls are so remarkable because for all the skeptics who said that the Bible wasn't reliable, when we took those Dead Sea Scrolls, these 2,000-year-old documents, and translated them, they matched up word for word with everything in the Old Testament in your Bible. And that's, that's what's going on. There were the zealots who, who were fighting against the power structures because they also saw the corruption of Rome. In fact, one of Jesus' own apostles, Simon, is a zealot also. And they wanted to regain power. They wanted to force the kingdom of God by fighting physically against the Romans. So John is boycotting the temple. And in verses 4, 5, and 6, Luke quotes the prophet Isaiah here to tell us what John is doing. Um, verses 4, 5, and 6. The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. So there are two prophecies at work here in the story of John. 
There is Isaiah's prophecy and Malachi's prophecy that Luke and John are recognizing as being fulfilled right at this moment. And Isaiah presents um, John as the herald of the coming Savior. John is the one proclaiming that the Savior is coming. He is a voice crying in the wilderness saying, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight in the desert a highway for our God, which is a quotation of Isaiah 40 and 3. And if you know anything about how when a conquering king comes into an ancient town, what happens is if he's come back from a battle or from a victory, the crowds run out to meet him, especially the small children. But crowds run out to meet him. And when he comes into town, you know, he doesn't walk in and go, hey, guys, I'm here. Hey, anybody? You know, when he comes in, there are crowds shouting and rejoicing, and they're celebrating him. So he comes in as a triumphant king. But to do that, you have to make a path for him. So in the ancient world, you didn't have, like, streets, like, you know, asphalt streets like we have now. So they would clear a path. They would clear out the underbrush, and they would make some type of dirt road that he could come in on with his horses and his chariots and his men and his soldiers and all of those things. And this is the imagery and language that's being used here. Make straight and clear a path in the desert make, to make a highway for our God. But here's the interesting thing. John is not saying, you know, start you know, sweeping and cleaning up and making an actual road and clearing the underbrush. What John is saying is prepare your hearts through repentance as an entrance and a highway for God. Did you catch that? What he's saying is, this is imagery he's using from the ancient world. He's saying, prepare a highway, and for John, the preparation for God's entrance into our hearts is repentance. And this is what he's saying. Now, I said a minute ago that Isaiah presents, uh, excuse me, Luke, um, Luke quotes Isaiah, which presents the forerunner of Christ one way, but then Malachi uh, represents John as the precursor of the coming judge. Savior, judge, two sides to the same coin, okay? Talking about Jesus and the ministry of Jesus, we're talking about who Jesus was, and what we're saying is on one side of the coin, he's Savior, right? But a part of that ministry as Savior is he's also judge. And so John is proclaiming not only that, that Jesus is Savior, the one that's going to come after him will save his people, but he's also saying that there is judgment coming on the land. In Malachi 3, 2, and 5, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. And against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So now we're talking about some judgment language. And this is helpful for us because it tells us that the day of redemption is also a day of judgment. The day of redemption is also a day of judgment. Israel's apostasy and rebellion against God for centuries-long rejection of the prophets and refusal to bear the fruits of repentance mean that judgment is coming. And listen to what John says in verses 3 through 9. Verses 3 through 9 of Luke. 
John says to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, you brood of vipers. I mean, hope, I, mean I think he maybe said it like that, you know. I was, you know, you brood of vipers. This is not, uh, this is not a welcome for, you know, your new members class, you know. You know, you brood of vipers. You know, imagine there's, you know, Mitch is at the door and people come walking through and he says, hello, you brood of vipers. Who warned you, he says, to flee from the coming wrath. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And don't even think to say to yourselves, "Mm -mm -mm," he says, that we're sons of Abraham. Nope, that excuse is not going to get you off the hook this time, he says. Don't even think to say, oh, Abraham's our father, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, this is important, not thousands of years in the future, he says, right now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Right now the axe is laid. You know, right before you know, the lumberjack cuts the tree down, he gets his tools ready. And he throws the axes down right in front of the trees. And that's what John is saying. Judgment is coming right now. It's impending. Not millennia in the future. He is pronouncing an impending catastrophe on the nation. Right now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Remember the story when Jesus walked up to a fruitless tree and cursed it on the spot and they marveled at how quickly it withered? And Jesus Jesus was saying, why is it even, why is it taking up valuable space? It's taking up valuable space in the ground and the resources and he cursed it and it withered immediately. And this is what John is announcing, that those who do not bear the fruits of repentance are about to be judged 400 years, there's prophetic silence. The nation has not heard from a prophet in four centuries. And the first thing that comes out of the prophet's mouth, John, is, you brood of vipers. And think about the imagery of vipers. What's a viper? It's a, it's a poisonous snake. I don't know here in Missouri, but in California, we have gardener snakes. And they usually, you find them in your front lawn, and they're really harmless. You know, they, they don't bite, but, but that's not a viper. There are a lot of snakes that aren't vipers. But a viper is a snake that can kill you. It's got a poisonous bite. And essentially the connection that John is drawing on is the serpent in the garden. That's the connection he's drawing on. And what he's essentially saying, and this is really hard for our modern sensibilities, right? Especially even as Christians... Right? Because we don't hear pe- preachers say, you brood of vipers and stuff like that. We hear preachers say, you know, check out our children's ministry, we have hot coffee. You know? <laughs> um, which is fine. But um, John's got a pointed message. And what he's essentially saying to the people is, your father isn't God, your father's Satan. Yeah, those are harsh words, but that's essentially the connection he's making. He sees that the multitudes are essentially relying on their ethnic identity as a marker and as a badge to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. 
My mother was Jewish, and my grandfather, whole life as a Jew, never believed in Jesus, died as an unbeliever. And when people would tell him about the gospel or something, you know, about religion, as he called it, he would say, I'm a Jew. I've got a first-class ticket to heaven. What are you talking about? Well, that was the mindset of the people in John's day. And this is why he confronts them, and he says, you know, any notion that your ethnicity, apart from faith and obedience, can do anything for you, has now, it's gone right out the window. God's doing a new thing, and wicked and unrepentant hearts are going to be judged by God's judgment. Don't think here for a moment that being a descendant of Abraham is going to get you off the hook. And what he's essentially saying by God raising up new stones is that God is about to raise up new descendants of Abraham. Descendants of Abraham by faith. God is about to raise up true Israelites, a new true Israel, the Israel of God, not just the Israel according to the flesh. I mean, these are tectonic ideas, you know, talking about a shift in, in the nation and their identity. These, these are huge, huge words here. No one has ever said this before. John is saying something new in a new way. And he says, the fruit you've been bearing too long has been rotten fruit. It's been rotten fruit. And God is getting ready to cut not only the fruit, but the root. And in verse 9 he says, even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now here's the interesting thing. This is the announcement of the gospel. This should challenge how we think about God's grace. Because we kind of think as modern people who don't have much fear of God, we live in a culture that's very rationalistic, right? We barely believe in the supernatural, even if we're Bible-believing Christians, let alone the fact that in God's grace there's any inclusion of judgment. And I want to say that God has not changed. God is the same God from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And the idea that because we profess Christ and say we've been saved by God's grace somehow means that we don't have to bear the fruits of repentance should be completely expelled from your minds right now. This is the pronouncement of the good news, and with that pronouncement, it's this, fruitlessness will not be tolerated by God. But repentance will clear a path for God's entrance. We cannot live our lives in a way that just says, we belong to God, we're saved by grace. I can commit any sin I want. I don't have to bear fruit. Or, you know, God's okay. You know, I do my best. I'm saved by grace. Look, we're saved by grace, but we never want to use the grace of God as a cloak to be evil. As a cloak not to bear fruit or to bear rotten fruit. There should be some fear of God. The grace of God gives us the assurance of our salvation, but we shouldn't have this cavalier attitude about God because John is pronouncing the gospel and, and the two sides of the coin is, one of the sides is that there is judgment coming. And John is actually quoting Malachi 4 and 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
John's not talking about some final judgment at the end of history when God judges all men. That will happen. He's pronouncing an impending judgment by way of a coming national catastrophe. And if you know the story, you know that when Jesus' ministry is in high gear, he picks up on John's language of judgment. And he declares that that generation would not pass away until those calamities were to come on the nation. You, if you know the story in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, when they tell Jesus about the end of the age, he's talking about the end of that old covenant age that's about to come to a close with a great cataclysm. Jesus talks about the signs of the times that the kingdom has come, and he pronounces a judgment, and he says, not one stone of this temple will be left standing on another. He's talking about a judgment that is coming in their time. You know, it's not just one day things will get really bad. You don't have to worry about it. It's not going to happen in your lifetime. He's saying within a generation's time, this nation and temple is going to be wiped out. And if you know about uh, the Old Covenant and the Jewish people, the temple is essentially the foundation of heaven and earth. To hear that the city and the temple would be destroyed is essentially declaring the end of the world as they know it. And so John is pronouncing this. And the crowds ask him, what should we do? And he answered, whoever has two tunics, in verses 10 through 14, share with the one who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came out to him, and they said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, don't collect any more than you're authorized to. And the soldiers also came out to him and said, what shall we do? And he said, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, here's what's interesting. All three areas of advice relate to money or material possessions. Think about that for a moment. All three areas of John's advice to the groups of people that come out to him relate to money or possessions. And this is something we should not miss. What we do with our money is a good indicator of where we are spiritually. Yes. What we do with our money is a very good indicator of whether our hearts are repentant and where we are spiritually. John breaks on the scene announcing the kingdom of God and preparing people's hearts for the coming Messiah. And what does he say? True repentance is exemplified by a giving spirit. In fact, you could, you could say that it, it wasn't simply their theology. Now, we're a part of a tradition that really regards theology highly, and I love that. But I want to say that that's not the only area God is concerned with in our lives, that our orthodoxy is, is lined up and, and buttoned up real tight. What God cares about is how we treat other people. God deeply cares about how we love each other, how we love our neighbor, and how we love the stranger. God deeply cares about that. And if you know, and if you remember, why does the flood come in Genesis? Because there was violence in the land, the way people treated each other. Why is there judgment coming on the Jewish nation right here in the first century? Because there is a stinginess, a hatred for, an, for neighbor. 
a lack of generosity and compassion toward one another. And John is essentially saying, these are the things that are going to characterize your repentance if you actually follow up whatever confession with real deeds in loving your neighbor. And this is something I've been talking about over the last few months. As we think about being a church that reflects God's glory and God uses to grow the kingdom, and I've been talking a lot about hospitality. And we don't always connect hospitality and evangelism together, but we should. Because our compassion for neighbor, our hospitality for each other, speaks of the gospel in our lives. It demonstrates that what we profess is actually really true. It authenticates the message of the gospel when we love others. It speaks loudly. And this is the message of repentance. John is baptizing people and he's calling people to repentance to open up their hearts and prepare a highway for God to come in. And because our theology is good, we know that that's impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit already at work inside of us, right? We know that repentance isn't a work that we have to do, right? So we're not earning God's grace. It's really God's grace in us that causes us to even think and realize and be convicted of our sin that we, that we have offended God. But God uses the means of preaching and the hearing of the word of God for us to realize Oh, we've sinned. This is not acceptable in God's sight. And yes, the context of John's message has to do with impending doom on the nation of Israel. Its implications span out for centuries and millennia, and it's just as true for us. In fact, in our nation right now, things are shaking. Things are shaking in our nation right now. I'm not going to endorse or poo-poo any candidates here, but I'm just going to say that what we're watching can cause, is, is, is maybe cause for us to realize as a nation, we've wandered. We certainly have as a nation. We've wandered from God. And we should not only be praying that the message of the gospel goes out, but that God use us as his people while everything seems to be falling apart, that we would be standing firm because he has given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And we ought to bear the fruits of repentance. Let's pray.